Uh, Turning your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Uh, if you're using one of the hardback Bibles from the table out there, you'll find it on page uh, 802, uh, Malachi chapter 3. If you're visiting with us this morning, um, let, me, um, let me sort of take this opportunity to explain our practice of, of preaching here at Grace Covenant Church. Um, we, uh, it's normally our practice, and not universally true, we've cheated a couple of times, but uh, more often than not, we preach through books of the Bible. Uh, if this is your first time with us, then then you've missed Genesis and Luke and um, James and Jonah and Philippians and I don't know what else. And that's all out there on the website somewhere. You can listen. It's on the website. You can listen, subscribe to the podcast and stuff like that. Um, and and now we're uh, several weeks into uh, the the book of. Malachi, seven weeks or so, six or seven weeks into the uh, the book of Malachi. Um, I say that for uh, a couple of reasons. One, um, I, I'm not going to apologize for what Scripture says, but at the same time, I don't want you to think we talk about money all the time. It just so happens that you came on the Sunday that uh, we're the Malachi gets us to uh, the subject of the tithe and giving to uh, the kingdom. Of God, uh, so uh, there's an encouragement there to you as well. Um, if you're visiting with us, or if you're visiting around other churches, um, let me encourage you: one Sunday doesn't make a, a decent visit. You've really got to go like a month in a row. Uh, if you go four straight weeks, then then you can say you've really visited uh, a church and kind of gotten a feel for uh, what they're like and what their practice is. Uh, Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. It's our practice to stand when we read God's Word. Uh, So if you are able, let me ask that you do that now. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, you have written these words. Uh, You have preserved these words. Uh, We need you to work in and through them even now in our own hearts and lives. And we pray that you would do so to the honor and glory of Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, you know, I, I assume you know what a litmus test is. Um, in science class, you get those little tiny pieces of paper. 
and you drop it into like a liquid or whatever and it turns colors and it becomes a color if the liquid is an acid, it changes to a different color if uh, the liquid is a base. It becomes you know, a certain color if the liquid would burn your finger off. Uh, it becomes an, another color if it's safe or if it wouldn't cause much damage at all. It's litmus paper. It determines the, the pH, the acidity of uh, a liquid or whatever. Uh, we use litmus tests. We use that language in normal uh, sort of everyday life uh, as a, a test for how strongly someone believes something. Say in political uh, language, for example, someone may ask a question about abortion, for example, to find out what this politician's actual true beliefs really are. It's a, it's a, a question or a scenario that, um, that sort of reveals uh, what you truly believe, what you truly think, what you truly hold dear. You can use a, a player's attendance at practice as a litmus test, as evidence for his commitment to the team and to the sport. Um, there are all sorts of things like that. We have litmus tests, if you will, in our own lives, even as believers. So there are, are sort of tests given to us, uh, ways for us to kind of get glimpses, evidence of our love for Christ. And the reality is that's essentially what this passage is. It reveals a, a litmus test for God's people. Uh, one such litmus test would be your checkbook. If someone were to uh, write a biography, and I, I've, I've heard of someone doing this and I couldn't find the reference, um, but someone basically was writing a biography of someone and most of the information they got, they got from old check stubs. What would the biography of your life be if someone went through just your check stubs and your credit card statement? Uh, what does is, what is Jeff love? Uh, well, there's probably some Clemson involved. Um, you know how that works. That's in essence the heart of this passage this morning. Uh, the problem is the people of Israel have already failed the test and God is now actually bringing charges against them. You know, that's, that's been the pattern of the book of Malachi all along. Uh, God makes a statement uh, the people look back at him and go, uh, I don't see that. I don't agree with you. How, what do you mean by that? And then he sort of lays the charge out against them. Uh, they're back in the promised land after having been 70 years in exile in Babylon. The temple's rebuilt. Sacrificial system has been reinstated. And yet there's evidence over and over and over again of a, a lack of love for God. And in this passage, we see withholding, giving, and receiving. Notice, first of all, the Israelites are, are found withholding what they ought to have been giving to God. God starts with, I don't change. And that's actually Israel's hope. That's the reason they haven't been destroyed. The reason they haven't been consumed, verse 6 says. The, the reason is because God made a promise to Jacob, their ancestor, their forefather, that He would be with them and preserve them and keep them and, and make them a people and a nation and give them a place 
and bless them and care for them. And because of that promise, because of God, because God doesn't change these descendants of Jacob who should rightly be consumed, as we've already seen several times in, in Malachi, aren't. It's not because of their goodness. It's not because of their merit. It's not because of who they are. It's because of God's commitment to His own promises, the promises that He has made. The continued existence of Israel is dependent on God's character more so than on their obedience and their righteousness. Now, it's interesting, actually, in verse 6 and 7, Israel hasn't changed either. In fact, that's, that's technically the second half of that verse. Oh, children of Jacob, you are not consumed. That, that could read a different way. And it could mean, and, and you haven't changed either. You haven't ceased to be the sons of Jacob. That's essentially what verse 7 says. From the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. God says, I haven't changed. And guess what, Israel? Neither have you. Your forefather, Jacob, the one to whom I set my affections, the very first disputation, the very verse 2 of Malachi 1, the one on whom I set my love and, and the one to whom I promised commitment for all eternity, he was just as disobedient as you are. He was just as bad at keeping his end of the deal, his covenant promises as you are, Israel. I think that's part of the reason he calls them the children of Jacob in verse 6. To remind them, your forefather, well, he wasn't very good. And you're just like him. You haven't changed one bit. You know, I think sometimes we, living when we do, long after the whole Bible has been completed. We have the whole Bible. We have the whole Old Testament. We see the end from the beginning. When we read Genesis 1-1, we read it already knowing how the New Testament plays out. They, of course, in Malachi's day, they didn't have Matthew and Mark and Luke. They're still 450 or 60 or 75 years away from that, from those events, much less the writing of them we tend to look down on Israel for their foolishness, for their disobedience. We see the whole story. And so we look at them and think, how could dare you? How could you possibly respond to God this way? After all the things He's done for you, how could you possibly reject Him? How could you possibly... Are we so perfect as that? Are we so arrogant as that? It's easy for me to look down on Israel for their disobedience and then excuse my own because, well, I mean, I don't know how the rest of my life is going to play out. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. I don't know. But I hold them to a different standard than I even hold myself. The problem with Israel is that they're withholding that which they were supposed to give to God. They couldn't see clearly His work in their lives. It should have been plainly evident to them. Seventy years in Babylon, now they're back home and the temple's rebuilt. Their problem was, I mean, yeah, there's a temple, but it's, it sure is ugly. 
I mean, it sure is kind of... Compared to the last one, this thing's lame. It's like somebody found some random boards and just sort of pretended to nail them together and, and maybe, you know, some duct tape here and there. And, I mean, it's nothing like stone and marble and gold and just, you know, when the light would shine on it, you almost couldn't see. It was so bright and, and shiny and grand. Instead of seeing that they're back in the land with a temple at all, they're too busy comparing that's not as nice as the old one. And so God calls them to repent. He calls them to return to me. Return to me and I will return to you. The same word return and repent are, are fairly interchangeable throughout the Old Testament. They're withholding that which they're supposed to give to God. Do you ever have that sort of um, incredulous reaction to people when they say things to you, they tell you something you should do and it's already on your to-do list. Or they say, they give you suggestions of how you ought to do the thing you're going to do. And, and deep inside you're thinking, um, I'm angry at this person for even suggesting this. And how dare you even have the nerve to tell me how to do my job, to do what I'm supposed to do. And of course I'm going to do that. Because look, I've already, it's already on my to-do list for the day. So of course I'm going to do that. You didn't need to say that to me. Maybe some surprise sprinkled with some uh, disdain, maybe, in our reaction. Well, that's Israel's reaction to God. How exactly are we going to return to you? The truth is, they don't even realize how far away they are. They think they're fine. They think they're in Jerusalem and there is a temple and God, you owe us this. They think they're fine. So in their minds, return, I never left. They don't know what this returning even is. And even if they did, they wouldn't know how to do it. What do you mean return to you? What is this returning of which you speak, God? Is in essence what they say in verse 7. They don't know they've wandered. They don't know how far they are. And they don't think they need to repent. And they wouldn't know how to repent even if they sort of realized it. And then God tells them how. How will they return to God? How are, how are we to give evidence of returning to Him? And notice He reaches, quite honestly, a most painful aspect of Christian living. He points His finger at the thing, quite honestly, I want to hold on to most tightly and most dearly. They're robbing God. I don't know exactly how you break into heaven and rob God. We have friends in, in back in Oxford, Mississippi. I feel like this story is familiar. I may have told it recently. If I use it as a sermon illustration, smile and nod and pretend that I didn't. Um, but I feel like I've said this somewhere. We have friends, uh, Andy and Dana, who um, in the same night had... Both cars stolen out of their driveway. 
And, and in my head is this image. I didn't see it, but I, I heard about it as, as Andy's out in his driveway trying to leave to go to work the next morning with this really sort of confused look on his face. Like there's no car in the driveway. They, they're both gone. And, and another church member, another friend driving by, you know, lives kind of right around the corner, drove by on his way to work and kind of waved to Andy and Andy kind of half waved. Like just this confused, literally both cars taken. I don't know how you do that to God. I don't know how exactly you go, well, I mean, I'm just going to go up into heaven and I'm going to take what belongs to God. Right? That's what robbing is, right? We, we understand the word rob. The word rob means um, taking something that belongs to someone else. If I come to your house and take your car, then, then it's your car and I've taken, I have robbed you. That's the definition of rob. We, we totally get rob. We totally understand what that word means. The problem is the people of Israel are robbing God not by breaking into heaven and taking something, but by not giving something. He says you're withholding the tithe. You're not giving the tithe. Bring the whole tithe, verse 10, into the storehouse. They're robbing God by not giving the tithe. That says something about the tithe, does it not? That says something about the first 10%? That is not actually theirs? It's not actually ours? Okay, we know God owns it all. God, simply by the word of His power, spoke and created everything that is. And as the creator of everything, He's the owner of everything. He rules over everything. He owns all of it. It's not like He owns 10% of my, of my income and I own the other 90%. Technically, it's all His. He asked me to give 10% to Him and to the kingdom and to the storehouse and to the work of the church. And He allows me to be a steward of the other 90 So we get all of that. But the picture here is Israel's withholding the tithe. They're keeping it from God. And by withholding the tithe, they're actually robbing Him. The tithe is His. The first 10%, those first fruits rightly belong to God. Turn with me back to Numbers chapter 18. Uh, Numbers 18, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. There's the fourth book of uh, the Bible. Numbers 18, verse, we, so many other places we could have gone to get a picture of, of what the tithe is and how it works. Uh, this works as well as any. Numbers 18, uh, verse 21, To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do. Their service in the tent of meeting. So the Levites, the tribe of Levi, didn't get an inheritance. All the other tribes got chunks of land in Israel. And they got cities. And they got, got, got land to farm. They got all of those sorts of things. The Levites didn't get any. Their job is work in the temple. And so they live off of not their own sort of work and farming and all that, but off of the tithe brought into uh, the temple for uh, the Levites. So, verse 22, "...so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting, lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall do the service of the tent of meeting." 
and they shall bear their iniquity. And it shall be a perpetual statute among throughout your generations and among the people of Israel. They shall have no inheritance. For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 25, saying, Moreover, you shall speak and say to the Levites, when you take from the people of of Israel the tithe that I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe, and your contribution shall be counted to you as though it were the grain of the threshing floor and as the fullness of the winepress. So you shall also present a contribution to the Lord from all your tithes, which you receive from the people of Israel. And from it you shall give the, give the Lord's contribution to Aaron the priest. So you see the picture there is all the people bringing in the first fruits, the first 10% into the storehouse for the Levites. And then the Levites would give a tithe of the tithe for the priests, for Aaron and for his offspring. Israel's robbing God back in Malachi 3 by keeping back that which rightly belongs to Him. They're withholding the tithe from God. And so God says there's a way to return to Him, and that is to start giving. Uh, We see withholding in the first few verses, and then notice in verse 10 the command to give. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Not some, not most, not a little, but the whole. Now, you mathy people, those of you that kind of like math stuff, um, the word tithe means tenth. So technically there's no such thing as a partial tenth. It's either the tenth or it's not. It's either the tithe or it's not. So whole tithe is sort of like redundant. That's like saying, bring the full 10%. As though bringing 5% were bringing 10%. It's not the same thing at all. Uh, but he's, he's commanding, he's encouraging, instructing the Israelites to bring all of it. Uh, to bring the full tithe, the full 10% into the storehouse. The litmus test of our love for God and trust in God and His promises is giving this full tithe, this 10%, and bringing it into the storehouse. And that's where it belongs. It belongs in the storehouse. Throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel were told to to bring it to the temple or to the tabernacle before the temple was built. They bring it into there because from there it is given uh, to the Levites and to the priest. The tithe was used for uh, the support of the Levites and their work of temple tabernacle uh, service, of the support of the priests in their work as priests. It was used uh, for sojourners and widows and orphans and for the poor uh, and for um, for caring for those in need. And the instruction is simple. Give it to God. Give the full tithe. Bring it all into the storehouse. 
why exactly does that make for a good litmus test? Why does giving, why does tithe the tithe, why does that make for a, a test of our love for God and our trust in God and His promises? I, I think the, the number one reason we withhold the tithe, the number one reason we hold back in giving to God is because we think, I mean, this car is about to die. This car is about to fall apart. And I got this mortgage payment. And I got this kid in college. Or two kids in college. Or four kids in college. And I've got, you know, this free public education is not so free. It's costing me more than it should. And, you know, my kids won't stop growing. And they need uh, clothes. And I have to take them to the doctor. uh, Some more than others. Right, we have this long list of all these things we've got to do, and every time we say, "Man, this, this is going to cost me," this is going to cost, and that's going to cost me, and this is going to get expensive, and this is going, we start thinking, "Well, I, I, I got to hold a little bit more." If we're honest, we're saying, "I'm trusting in my money more than I am in God." I'm trusting in my income more than I'm trusting in God to actually care for me. I'm going to withhold this and I'm going to hold on to this dearly because this is what will get me by. Not God and His faithfulness. Not God and His loving care for His people. If we withhold the tithe, if we're honest, it's because we don't trust Him. But notice verse 10. We've seen withholding, we've seen giving, we also see receiving. Because look at verse 10. There's a promise there. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If our checkbook is a a litmus test of our trust in God's sovereign power and His loving care for us, then giving is also a way to test God. Now I know what you're thinking. Testing God sounds awfully dangerous. In fact, I'm pretty sure the Bible tells me I shouldn't. In fact, I'm pretty sure the Old and the New Testament both tell me I shouldn't. Because when Jesus in Matthew 4 is out in the wilderness and being tempted by Satan himself... He quotes the Old Testament. Satan says, do this. Jesus says, the Bible says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. And now here, God's saying, test me. See if I won't pour out blessing on you from heaven. See if I won't rebuke the the devourer, the thing that comes and eats your uh, your fruit, your grain, your harvest. See if I don't pour out rain on your harvest so that it grows and produces fruit. And see if I don't hold back the locust so that He won't eat it. God says, test me. Test and see if I won't pour out uh, loving kindness and heap loving kindness on you. The difference is this. In the first instance, that test 
demands evidence of the reality of God, this is a show of faith and trust in His promises. The other is delayed obedience. The other is saying, uh, I'm not really going to trust you, God, until you prove this to me. This, however, says, I trust you. Now show yourself faithful. Uh, it's, it's asking God to move first versus trusting in His promises and His character with longing expectation and anticipation of His blessing. Maybe you're thinking, look, sometimes, I mean, sometimes we have difficulty. Sometimes we have financial hardship. We, we lose our jobs. We, 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 whatever. We aren't being paid what we should. We, we go through real, true, economic, financial hardship. That's exactly the case for Israel at this point. They're still technically under Persian control. They're being troubled by people groups around Jerusalem. They're not economically stable. The city doesn't have a wall. They're not protected from the people outside of them. They're, they're not raking in the dough. In the midst of economic trouble, God says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. And see if I won't pour out covenant blessings on you. I know that sounds crazy. So let me get this straight. The Bible is actually suggesting that when I'm in need, I keep giving to God? Think of all the times in God's economy. Um... Think of all the times that God's economy is upside down from the world in which we live. How are you going to get to the top in this world? Step on people. Climb over people. Talk bad about those people, about your co-worker, so that you can get the advancement over him. That's what the world around us says. What does God say? The way up is down. The way up the one who will be exalted is the one who humbles himself. The Bible says that the first will be last and the last will be first. That's the opposite of the world in which we live. First the cross, then the crown. The world in which you and I live says, I don't want a cross. I'm only after the crown. And if I have to beat you up to get to it, so be it. God promises to bless His people. To pour out rain on their crops and to keep the critters from destroying them. Only test. Bring the full tithe. And see if I won't honor and bless you. How do we apply this uh, passage for us? We're 2,500 years after Malachi. 2,500 years after uh, these days, these Israelites uh, back in the promised land for the first time in, in 70 years or whatever. Uh, how do we apply this passage to us? The first question is obvious. Does the tithe still apply today? That, that's the obvious sort of first question. Does this still apply to us today? 
truth is, I find people answering yes and no, people that on either side I hate to disagree with. Here's where I land. Uh, that the tithe still applies for us. Um, it's not technically repeated in the New Testament as a clear command. There's not a technically a verse using the, the concept of the tithe in the New Testament, repeating the command of the Old but there are other things that fall in that same category that I firmly agree with and firmly affirm in the New Testament. Things that truths, doctrinal truths that we hold dear in our Presbyterian circles. For that matter, Jesus never actually condemns the tithe. Turn to Matthew chapter 23. Jesus had the perfect opportunity to say, look, the tithe is going to go away. And what you need to do is this instead. And he doesn't do it. In fact, he does the exact opposite. Uh, Matthew chapter 23. This is easy because Matthew is the very next book in your Bible. There's a blank piece of paper between Malachi and Matthew. And then 23 comes after 22. Uh, Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. So you see there the condition. Jesus is condemning the Pharisees. You're being so persnickety as to tithe on the smallest of um, the smallest of things in your herb garden. You're being so particular and so precise and so detailed that you're finding the, the smallest sort of less, least thing in your herb garden, garden and actually tithing on that. And notice what Jesus says. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You should have engaged in justice and mercy and faithfulness. Those are the weightier matters of the law. You should have cared for justice and mercy but not at the expense of the tithe. Notice he says, without neglecting the others. Jesus had a perfect opportunity to to say, look, the tithe is going to go away. You're focusing on the wrong thing. Focus on justice and mercy, and you really don't need to worry about the tithe because, because once I die and rise again, that's going to be gone. And he doesn't say that at all. He actually encourages them all the more. So I think that the, the concept of the tithe still applies for us today. I will add this. If 10% was a minimum in the Old Testament, how much more generous and gracious should we be living after Christ rather than before Him? Living, living after the, the full uh, fulfillment of the promise of redemption in Christ. A second application. I want you to notice something. The tithe is commanded throughout the Old Testament. And never, ever does it save anybody. Nowhere does anybody get to go, well, I gave 10%, so God, you should accept me. In fact, I actually gave 11 I kind of, I'm not really good at math. And so I'm pretty sure my 10% ended up being more than that, God. So you owe me. 
trust me, I don't know how much you make. And actually, I don't know how much you give. Uh, two things I really don't care to know. Um, but I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty confident that none of you makes enough that 10% would save you from eternity in hell. That's the reality of Scripture, right? It's merely a test of our trust in God. It is not a means of buying His favor, of gaining His favor. Blood has to be shed for our sin. The question is, will it be yours? Or will you trust in Christ and look to Him, the free offer of the Gospel, as the one who bled and suffered and died in your place to satisfy the justice of God, the wrath and curse of God that we deserve for our sin, but who rose again from the dead to save us, to give us life, to prove His love and power over our sin. Giving the tithe is merely a a test of trusting God's providence and the most important promise to trust, of trusting God's promise. The most important promise to trust is the promise that He will save you if you will lean on Christ and run to the cross. He alone can save you. His death alone can save you from our cosmic treason. A third application. Let me make just this comparison. You know why we're called to give? Okay, yes, it takes money in this world to, um, to, to send out missionaries. It takes money to, to do kingdom work uh, through uh, in the world in which we live. But you know why we're actually called to give? What's the most famous verse in the whole Bible? For God so loved the world that He stingily held on to gave. Our God's a giving God. He's so loving and so giving and so gracious and so generous that He would actually do for you that which none of us would do for each other. He would give you His Son. His life for yours. You can have a lot of my stuff. You can't have one of my kids. I'm not giving Him up for you. I don't love you that much. God does. Our God's a giving God. We serve a giving and generous and gracious God. And He's making us more and more like Him. Oh, that we would actually be able to get to the point that we would graciously, generously give simply because we're reflecting our heavenly Father. Oh, that He would do that work in us even today. Let's pray together. Uh, Father in Heaven, we thank You for uh, not withholding. Uh, We thank You that You graciously and generously and lovingly and overwhelmingly gave even Your Son to suffer and bleed and die in our place. Uh, Father, would You Conform us more and more into His image and make us giving people, generous people. People who long to uh, give to the work of Your kingdom 
both here at Grace Covenant in Athens and around the globe, uh, so that we might see uh, the cause of Christ, the kingdom of Christ advanced throughout all the world. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen.